0: Let's go. Romans chapter 8 and verse 10 through 17 if you turn there and we thank Justin for starting the subject of the Holy Spirit of course last week Romans eight ten through 17 let me read it first but if Christ is in you your body is dead because of sin yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Mm -hmm. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Verse eight through
1: seventeen. Eight, ten through seventeen. Ten, eight through eight, ten
0: through seventeen. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. Romans ten. No, Romans eight, I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good start, isn't it? <laughs> <Just get started. laughs> start me up and
0: okay. So it's good though to talk about the Holy Spirit. I'm so thrilled about to talk about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is often the forgotten member of the Trinity. I think. And, I'm, and part of the reason it may be, and, and this is just my thought, is that sadly, you know, what, what is called the charismatic movement or the, um, you know, the apostolic movement of the early 1900s, Lady Tener is into, you know, my, my time of early Christianity, there was a lot of dominance with speaking in tongues and the, this whole idea of the Holy Spirit, word of faith, and, you know, you've probably been familiar with some of that. And so, sadly, I think sometimes that Christians who never experienced or believed that these things are for today uh, tend to be shy away from anything Holy Spirit. So, sadly, I think it did a disservice to the role and the relationship that we have to the Holy Spirit. So, and it's ironic that today you're not hearing so much about tongues anymore. I don't know why. Tongues just seem to have lost its flavor and word of faith movement. you know, it's more just money-oriented now than it is the Holy Spirit. So sadly, um, that took its course. But the Holy Spirit's role is much greater than that. It's not as shallow as just speaking in tongues and what they would say was the main role today in the church of God. We see the roles and relationship with the Holy Spirit. We are made righteous and we will be resurrected through and by the Holy Spirit. We will live to Christ. We live to Christ by and through the Holy Spirit. We are made adopted sons and God's children and co heirs through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is vital to our life and we forget that Jesus said, It is good for you that I go away. When would Jesus ever say when would it ever be good that Jesus goes away? But he said, It's good for you that I go away so that another one will come and I'll not leave you as orphans. So it shows you again that the deity of course of the Holy Spirit, um, that he that another one in the same name, the same likeness, the same power would come and reveal him to us, um, and that's what the Holy Spirit did. You know, forty days after Jesus resurrected, he showed himself, and then he said, "Not many days hence, you'll receive the promise." Right? Tenth, then ten days after that, Day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit came, and forever with us all as believers, indwelling us, uh, redeeming us, living in us, leading us, teaching us. Jesus said, "Bring to remembrance all the things that he taught." the comforter, the helper. The, he's a legal advocate. I, you look at the word paraklechos, it really means like an advocate who takes your place, who knows you so well as an advocate that he can go to the bar of God because he's got, the Holy Spirit prays things. Remember it says we don't know how to pray. He's going to pray. He prays for us constantly. The, the Lord Jesus intercedes for us. We have the bar of God is surrounded by the Holy Spirit to bring these prayers before one who knows the mind of God. So, Someone else said, I thought this was a good point, he said, the Holy Spirit is the executive of the Godhead. And you say, what does that mean? Well, look at our government, right? You've got the executive branch. What does the executive branch, that's the president, right? Legislative, but we have the executive. The executive, of the br- the executive branch of the executive of, a say, a company is responsible to put into effect policies. That's what an executive means. To put into effect the policies that are decided upon. So the Holy Spirit... Someone once said, and I, I can't really disagree, he said, God does nothing apart and except through the Holy Spirit. So he speaks. Now go back to Genesis, right? God will speak, but what does it say? Back in Genesis, in, Genesis, in the creation of the world, it says, and the Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit ready to put into effect the policy... Of the Godhead, and of course the Holy Spirit is one of the Trinity, the Godhead. So the Holy Spirit puts it this: so everything is done through the Holy Spirit, which is fascinating. Uh, he hovered upon the face of the waters, ready as a as a mother bird to give birth to the to the uh, to the living. So verse ten is interesting. Now we're coming off of verse nine, just to go back for a minute. And my version is, well, it's funny, like Pat said last week, the NIV, the nearly inspired version. So there's, you may be seeing different words as, uh, as I'm reading, but that's okay. We'll see what maybe more of that. But verse 9 you are ever not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. So it's vital to have the Holy Spirit living in you. And it says controlled, it really just says in or means to be controlled. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Then he says in verse 10, that's where we start. But if Christ is in you, he says something fascinating. Is this a contrast? If Christ is in you as a believer, your standing is your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Other versions say, yet the spirit or the spirit is life because of righteousness. It's a debated verse. And at first I thought it was, you know, this is going to be critical to know what it means. I don't really know if it makes a huge difference either way we see it, because the point is the Holy Spirit redeems us and, and lives in us. He, he enacts the power to be saved. So, But what it's saying here is there's a st- seems to be a standing in and in a contrast. If Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. What can that mean? So our mortal bodies, of course, we know is going to die. But the body of flesh, or what we call the flesh... These words are used interchangeably, so that's a little bit of a problem with the mortal body, but there's not really a big difference when it says mortal body or flesh. They are two different words. But there's not a huge difference sometimes. They interact. Your body's dead because of sin can mean what? What's our standing? What does this mean to us? Our body's dead because of sin. What can it mean? Anybody? No
2: longer counted against us. What's that? No longer counted against us in
1: Christ.
0: So the body's dead because of sin, and okay, well, you're right. The sins are not counted against us, but that's true. What else, April? I
3: was thinking that it means more like our bodies see decay and corruption every day because it
1: is flesh and it's not perfect yet.
0: Right, and it is decaying. We know that. The
1: problem is... That whole body spirit distinction is very dangerous because right. you, you, you end up bumping up so close to right. the errors that popped up all over the place in the early church, and so I mean, let's face it, it's not as if our spirits are doing great.
4: I mean, right? You know, yeah,
1: everything we do, we do with our everythingness.
4: Mm-hmm. You know, and, it's not as if
1: we're redeemed souls trapped in a, in a dead body.
0: Right. Yep. Right. Every, every single verse here, you know, this is the trouble with Hebrews and Romans, really, old oh, Bible. Every verse could just be taken apart and and analyzed. And again, there's there's debate on a lot of these verses, too. It's Mm -hmm. not like there's one scholar that's got all the answers. But um, just to give you an idea of where I'm coming from or what I could kind of see it as where I am today, your body's there because it's in your flesh or your body. So the flesh, like like Peter's saying, is what is this flesh? It's the totality still left behind in the believer. It's what we call the old man the old man, we put off the old man, put on the new, keep putting on uh, the sin, some call it the sinful nature, then have you call sinful nature, the Greek just calls it flesh. What's it referring to basically is that part of us that is still, though our spirit is redeemed and I do hate to separate the two, like you said, make this line, but it's not so much as making it a definite line as as what happens in us, for instance, So we still have a sin. We call it the ability, the capacity to sin, even though we've been born again. So the body of sin, the body is dead. The flesh is still there. The the capacity to sin. But our spirit is alive because of righteousness. Remember, we're dead in trespasses and sins. And our spirit was dead. The unsaved man is dead (laughs) in body, sin, and in spirit. So, But even if you want to say it's the Holy Spirit. Yet the Spirit, capital S, we would say in English, is alive because of righteousness. So the Holy Spirit is alive in us, and through righteousness, we're made righteous. And I, that's not a problem. Either way, we're born again. But we still fight this old nature. We still have the old man to contend with, and there's no doubt about that. So he says here in verse 11, and then he kind of looks forward to the future, and this is really the first part of the study. Is say two. Par- I won't say bad news and good news, but it goes like this. The first part describes the tension and the tyranny of the flesh. That's still there. It still wants you to sin. still wants you to disobey God. So you have three enemies in the world. It said the, the world, the devil, and the flesh, so to speak. So the tyranny is still there. And then later we'll see, and there is freedom, and we're going to see that obviously, as we go along, and victory included as well in these battles that we fight. But he says, looking to the future in verse 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So, now that could be referring to our earthly bodies like April was saying, our fleshly dead bodies corrupted and decaying. And also, I think it can refer to, you know, like that's like the totality of who we are. Our spirit is, is part of our life, our spirit that dwells in us. So let's go on to verse 12. Um, verse 12 starts getting interesting as well. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. Now, the NIV puts it a little backwards. It might say in yours, we, we do not have an obligation to the flesh. The NIV says, We have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And just stand there for a minute. That's plenty there. Um, So we have an obligation. That word means debtor. We're we're debtors is what he's saying. We're not debtors to the flesh is what it's saying. The NIV says sinful nature. Basically it's simply saying we have we don't have an obligation and we're not debtors to the flesh to live according to it. If you live according to the flesh or the sinfulness you will die, but if by the spirit you put to death the mysteries of the body you will live. Now it doesn't mean we're not going to sin. Right? Do we still sin as Christians? That's the this is the tension, right? Well he doesn't sin, and I'm glad about that. Oh, I he that's where we're heading, like John Wesley and them, the Holy Club. That <laughs> they, they thought the Wesleyans, some of the early Wesleyans thought they could literally get to a point of sinlessness, of living sin- <laughs> sinlessness, where they could actually not sin, which is hard for me to believe because we have a, a brain which thinks things all the time. Uh, so we have, we're debtors, he says, but the, so the tension is there. One, one writer says this I thought was good. He said it's tremendously important to grasp the import of verse 12 because it teaches beyond all question that the believer still has the sinful nature within himself despite having been crucified with Christ. The flesh has not been eradicated, but we are obliged not to live according to it. There's no option. The flesh is linked to death as life is linked to the spirit. Sanctification is not a luxury, but a necessity. It is not an ambition. It is a duty. So, we don't want to see it as just negative, like he goes on to say here, that don't see it as just a negative emphasis on our lives as being just walking around with just sinners, Um, but as we're putting on Jesus Christ. We're not to make provisions for the flesh, but the fact remains that we still sin. We still have the capacity, and the flesh has a tendency and a tension for us to, as we look at King David, and I don't mean to drag poor King David into all this. But uh, here's a man who, you know, committed murder, d- thought out murder, by the way, right? Malice aforethought, forethought, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, thought it through adulterous, you know, man after God's own heart. Um, people like uh, um, Samson, you know, just we all sin is the problem. So the tension is going to be there. Uh, and the, the thing that I have trouble with, I think sometimes as Christians we have trouble with, when we sin, we sometimes sin so that we wonder of our salvation. And we know unbelievers who, I remember when I first got saved, there was this young man who I thought was, I said Lord, he's a better man than I than I am. He doesn't get upset. He doesn't have a temper. He How is he not a <coughs> Christian? How am I a Christian? I couldn't understand because I knew that I still sinned. I knew that I still had this tendency to to still sin in ways that, I thought I would not have to worry about it anymore after that. I, I'll show you an illustration I thought of. And um, Denise thought it was a good, good idea to explain. Now, again, this is just me giving you an illustration. This is how I see... You can't see the Christian life, okay? Today. So, three portions. We're in the middle portion right now. We are in the portion. So, there's the body. Now, when I say body, I'm talking about the whole thing. Flesh, sin, our physical body, whatever. So, the body... Is dead because of sin. This is before we're saved. Body is dead, spirit is dead. Okay, body is dead, spirit's dead. We were we were under wrath. We were chilled. we were without hope, just as they were or are. Body is dead, flesh sin is uh, spirit is dead. His Christian body is dead still, sin uh, spirit is alive. See, eternity, body alive. New body, spirit alive. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So body then will be new and capable. Because right now we see through a glass darkly, right? Paul says. Paul says, "There's nothing good in my flesh that is dwells in me." So there's this tension we have now that our body is still deadish, has flesh; it's not eradicated fully. But our spirit is alive unto God. So now we have the Holy Spirit. We interact with God. And in the future, our hope is, and this is what Paul's pointing to all through his writings body is alive, redeemed, spirit is alive, matches, we shall know as we are known. We will know fully, but not now, fully. See, see what I'm trying to say? Justin?
4: Yeah, I think one of the ways to highlight the, um, like, body being dead and the spirit being alive distinction is. Um, where our drives are, are coming from and going towards um, I think at even as believers our flesh isn't driving us towards God but rather like, right. oftentimes the, the drives of our flesh are towards right. sinfulness um, right. our flesh isn't constrained to that we can still serve God um, right. but the drives of our spirit are alive to God and driving Amen. us towards towards Christ. Right. So that's the tension. In this current state, <coughs> our flesh's drives and desires don't push us towards God. Right. But our spirit's drives and desires too. Right. We do. But one day we'll receive a glorified body that doesn't have Amen. drives and fully desires of, right. that
0: fully redeemed. away from Exactly. Thank you. Without well, said nature. Um, I like to think of it as the Christian life is like a car with a severely out of alignment front tire. And that's the minute you take your hand off that wheel, it goes off to the curb. And the Christian life is like that. If you don't hold your hand on that wheel tight, keeping it straight, fighting that, fighting that tendency, it's going to go off to the curb.
1: The yeah. Holy Spirit is the rumble strip. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: I mean, he's the motor, right? He's the transmission. Amen. So, all right, very good. And again, we're not all talking negativity here. Obviously, thank God through the Holy Spirit. This is why we can rejoice. Otherwise, we are doomed. And that's what he's saying here. He says, uh, we have an obligation. He says in verse 13, If you live according to sinful nature, you will die. But if you live according to the Spirit, if, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now again, he's talking to believers. And he uses the word you. He says, you will die if you Live according to simple nature. So now now we have a problem. Do we? Is he talking about losing your salvation here? What's he talking about? He's talking to believers. You will die. He says, but... Now, don't forget there's a contrast here. Again, he's using a lot of contrast with spirit and flesh, life and death, sin and spirit. He says, if you live according to simple nature, you will die. But if by spirit you put death, message of the body, you will live. So... He's not talking about losing our salvation. I don't believe that, obviously. But what he's saying here is I think he's talking about it and others the readers or writers would say it's a, we're talking about a qualitativeness, a quality of the life of the believer. In other words, he, it literally says this, which I thought was kind of interesting. He says, If you live according to the sinful nature you will die. He says, If you live according to sinful, if you live according to the flesh, you are about to die. That's how one writer translates the original. You're about to die. What can that mean? Quality? If by the Spirit you put to death the practices, right? By the word misdeeds is interesting. That word means practices, practice, practice, ongoing practices. So we're, we're practicing putting to death. We can practice walking according to the, the old man. Mark, go ahead. I'm
2: just thinking, this, is, this sounds to me like he's describing. The evidence of salvation. Yes. If you are living to try to reduce, or, you know, not commit the same sins that you did, then right. you've been given a, uh, a reason to do that, and it's the Spirit. Right. And so to me, it looked like evidence to the person themselves that yes, there is a sanctification process at least started and ongoing yes. and if you're living if you, if you don't care, you just continue on doing whatever you're mm-hmm. doing without even considering what, mm-hmm. whether or not it's uh, good, helpful or, or, or right then right. You, you're not safe right
0: it's, it's, a ch- it's a choice we have every day actually every moment you're right we have the capacity to sin but we also have the capacity to, to obey God that's what I love about Romans when it says uh, sin shall have no more dominion over you it used to have dominion and you had no choice because your body was dead and your spirit was dead. But now you have a choice. You have power to fight sin. It no, it no longer has dominion, but you can walk towards it. You still have a choice as a believer. Justin?
4: Yeah, I think also part of the, what he's trying to get at here is the fact that... Um, in the circumstance that we find ourselves in as believers, <coughs> living according to the flesh no longer makes sense. Um, right. Because this, right. this, all this discussion falls into the category of Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in <coughs> Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Right. And so if you understand it in context of that, it's talking to believers who have been move from right. the law of death to the law of the spirit of life. And if you're mm-hmm. under the category of the law of the spirit of life, it no longer makes sense for you to commit deeds right. that bring death, right. but right. rather to commit deeds that bring life.
0: And we have a conscience, right? We have conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's like John, first letter of John. You know, we, we will not sin. But of course, we still can sin, obviously. John knows that, the apostle. But it's the... We, do, we we have this the brokenness the dominion is broken within us
1: Wally go ahead yeah um, something to uh, also add into there is the you just mentioned it about the Holy Spirit but taking it a little bit further this sanctification which causes us to grow right. in our relationship with God and we are given we are given free will to choose God or not to choose God but we are given free will to choose to sin or not to sin and the sanctification of God's Holy Spirit works in us and also convicts us so we are if we are truly His we are going to uh, go forward in our sanctification life and grow in Him I I
0: think we say that too we'll say we usually come down to as Christians is where we'll say, is somebody saved or, or is this person that we've known and they're in this big problem or they turn away from the Lord? Usually what we end up saying is, because we don't know, right? We can't say act, absolutely who's saved, who's not saved per se, but we talk about fruit. But we'll say, practice, misdeeds, practice, practice. John talks about sinning, 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 denying Jesus. I think the way we look at it is if a person has no conscience, no conviction, Show absolutely a turning of, of, you know, like the parable of the story turns away, um, it has nothing to do, defies God, there seems to be zero repentance ever. Then you wonder if the Holy Spirit, you know, we would come to the conclusion we wonder if the Holy Spirit's in that person.
4: Talk.
2: The biggest mistake a Christian can do, especially a young Christian, is read the book of Romans as if it were some kind of conversational format, mm-hmm. like other of the epistles are. It, it's a you could call it a doctrine of tristes mm-hmm. on the basic principles of life in Christ or mm-hmm. death because of sin mm-hmm. and the realities and that doesn't mean he doesn't have some practical things in him mm-hmm. there is and I mean I think verse 12 is pretty practical but his overall mindset is to, is to teach in relationship to these principles of either law and death, as Justin was saying, or the spirit of law in Christ mm-hmm. that gives us life true indeed. Mm-hmm. What that looks like. But he just doesn't say it in such a practical way what it right. looks like. He gives more principles yeah. to show us in relationship right. to what that looks like. And then right. the principles of, of, of being dead to sin and then being right. alive in the spirit. And the principles of what it means to be, have a relationship with God as a child rather right. than being dead and yep. not a child but an enemy of God that's Romans 5 so I mean yep. you've you got to read Romans with a different lens I to, think that's why it.
0: and that, that's why the whole emphasis on the Holy Spirit right now and it goes further of course and through, verse, uh, through the rest of the chapter is on the importance of the Holy Spirit and our relationship and understanding of His role in our life Gary yeah, you going to say something?
2: I think it's the exhortations on the Christian's maintenance mm-hmm. personal maintenance right. you know we, we are installed with the Holy Spirit of God mm-hmm. The flesh hasn't disappeared. It's right. still there, so it's obvious, like you were saying, there is that tension. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the warning here is that if we don't walk in the Spirit, right. we're going to become spiritually dead Right, right. It says about the widowed woman in 1 Timothy 5, she that lives in pleasure, talking about believing right. widows, right. saved people, she that lives in pleasure is dead. Right. While she lives, right. It's a deadened state that a believer can actually find themselves right. falling into because there's not. You said keeping mm. your hand on the steering wheel, so to speak. But there's a necessity that we walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, right. et cetera, et cetera.
0: Right. I think there's a thing. He says uh, you, you are, you'll die. Meaning that it's you're doomed to a, a life of. Uh, of horror as a Christian, you're in no man's land. You're, you don't fit in with the world, but you're, you're turning away from the Lord. If you put to death these practices, you will live. There'll be Zoe means a fullness of life, a quality of life. You you know how it is when you're close to the Lord, when you walk in and you're being led by the Spirit. There's a peace. There's a clear conscience. There's a joy even in the midst of troubles. There's hope. There's faith. There's stability. That's life. But when a believer turns away and, and continually seeks to walk after that, which comes easy do not set your paul the scripture do not set your mind on how to gratify the desires of the simple nature you don 't set your minds on how to gratify the desires and he talks, so the bible 's always giving us like there says maintenance of how not to live or how we should live by putting away these things and fighting that fight so um Good, good, good it's stuff. Always
2: done it, Gary, Barry, it's always done it in the con- The way Paul does it here, in the, in the contrast of who we were compared to who we yep. now are.
0: Amen, amen, amen. We just don't want to get to the point where someone thinks they're sinless. The problem with the extremes is, like we said, the problem with the extremes of saying, let us grace that sin may abound, you know the problem's there. You can get so loosey-goosey. The problem with, I'm sinless, uh, I... I walk always in the spirit. Then you have the problem of, you know, you've got blind spots you're not seeing, and you have the problem of legalism, judgment, lack of compassion, lack of mercy. All these things go with that. So the two extremes are bad news. Tammy? I think
3: what um, uh, that verse really speaks to me is the um, <clears throat> lack of growth that we will have if we if we don't follow, because he's even speaking, Paul's even speaking to the to the believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 he says, but I brothers cannot address you as spiritual people but but as people right. of the flesh as infants right. in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it yeah. and even now you're still not ready for it right. for you are still of the flesh yeah. I went off the path for like a solid year and then and now, knowing, you know, coming back and right. such, it feels like my, my desire has deepened because right. of the lack of growth that, right. I, that I just didn't have for that, mm. that last year. And I can't recover that last year. Right. You know, but I know that... Um,
0: the forgiveness is there. Yeah,
3: the forgiveness is there. And, and it is scary because Cle- it, it can happen. Yeah, cleansing. Anytime. Yeah, anytime. take heed lest
0: you fall, right? Mm-hmm. Do not be proud. Um, but Paul talks about the Corinthians being so bad at one point that they were doing things which the Gentiles would have blushed over, right? Mm-hmm. He says, you're doing things the Gentiles blush at. Taking each other to court. You're having these kinds of adulterous or mm-hmm. incestuous relationships. He says, he goes, you're giving Christ a bad name here. But he mm-hmm. calls them brothers. Um, they talk about a man turning him over for the discipleship over to Satan. What is? I don't even want to get, get into that, but turn, giving him over to Satan for destruction of the flesh. This is a Christian, supposedly, who then comes back. Anyways, not, not to dwell on the, how bad things can get, I want to look at now the good news too as well, as as seen verses 14 through 17, um, is all about now, remember I talked about the tension and the tyranny of the flesh. Well, now we see the Holy Spirit who testifies and demonstrates the totality of the ability to walk in the Spirit and to, be, and to have joy and to have a realization of who we really are. And I, I found this to be really exciting. I'm so happy to share with you what I learned about adoption today or, or what, um, what you probably have not thought of or maybe you had a chance to study it, but I at least had a chance to look it up more closely. So, He says here in verse 14 then, after saying the bad news, so to speak, and, and the possibility to walk in the Spirit, he says, "Because those who le- are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So if you're led, and the verse there actually means like a shepherd, like Jesus, the Holy Spirit is like a like a shepherd who leads us, and we allow ourselves to be led, so that we're not sheep that go astray." He says, "They are the sons of God. Those who are led by the Spirit, verse fourteen, are the sons of God. That's the difference. If you're led." If you're willingly led, you seek to be led, and when you and when you don't follow, like Thomas and Simon, we've fought, we've seen in our own lives, when we seek to go astray like a sheep, we get into trouble and we get in all kinds of problems and whatnot. Till we come back to the shepherd of our souls, Jesus of course, and through the Holy Spirit. So he says now this whole idea of what what do we have in our in ourselves, what do we possess? He says, A spirit who makes us adopted A spirit who testifies that we are God's children and that we're co-heirs with Christ. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. We see that. Verse 14 um, and 15. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, literally adoption. That's the word adoption. Your version may say adoption, and that's what it is. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Father. So, when we, were, when we were unsaved, we were slaves, and we were slaves to sin, and we, had a, we were slaves to fear. We had a spirit of fear, right? Paul talks about those who live in fear of death all their lives, and still death is, a, is coming, but we're not in fear. And we're not a slave to it. So, our, our, sta, our status was slaves. That's how we start. That's what the world is, slaves to sin. We were slaves. He goes, we didn't receive that spirit of slavery again, he says. Now we've received a spirit. We're led by the spirit of God. We received a spirit of adoption. And by him we cry out, Abba, Father. And those are connected. These verses now are all connected about sonship and adoption and Father and Abba and co-heirs. And all these are together in one beautiful thing. You'll see. Um, The spirit of adoption. Paul says it beautifully. Listen to this and I'll read. You can stay in Romans. Let me read Galatians 4. Listen to this. He says he repeats it almost. He says, God sent his son born of woman, born under law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights as sons. Okay, sons. He says, because you are because you are sons, God sent the spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son. God has made you also an heir. So there, in Galatians, he just repeats what he said here, only more powerfully. What does he mean by this? Jesus even cried out from the cross in Mark, "Abba, Father." What was he? What was he meaning when he said that? All right, here at this study on the Roman Empire, you can't see these pictures, but let me ask you a question: What do? And the, Paul was a Roman citizen. Don't forget that he was born a Jew and he was born a Roman. Tarsus was a. They, They call it a city of Rome, which certain cities had special benefits of being Roman. Uh, The Romans gave certain cities special gifts and special recognition for who they were and what they, who who was in them. Uh, Retired generals, things like this, would go to certain cities. Uh, What do Augustus, Tiberius, and Marcus Aurelius, our mark, Marcus Aurelius, three of the greatest Roman emperors, what do they have in common? anything would you guess they were all adopted and somebody goes, well that was well that was weird there's a reason for that it's very very important adoption let me read this to you when we think of adoption in america we think of it very differently than the romans did and that's part of the thing that we want to see today and enjoy when paul talks about adoption he's not talking about what you and i think about adoption at all nothing like you and i think of adoption totally different This writer says here, um, the motivation to adopt was very different in Roman times than today. Contemporary adoption, we in America, is aimed at placing a child in a loving family. Isn't that what adoption is? And oftentimes adoption is sometimes seen by, might be seen by some, and I say this with respect, might be seen as a lesser privilege than being born a biological child in a family, right? That's how some people might see that. But they're born into a loving or brought into a loving family so that's the goal of adoption he says Roman adoption providing, was providing a suitable male heir to become the new pater familias now that's a, a I don't know maybe Rob's heard of that Latin verb word pater familias it means father of the family very important when the family patriarch died if he had no sons adoption was a common solution among the noble orders of senators and equestrians these were other nobles it was not common among the lower classes so much, and women were seldom adopted. Um, it's about uh, it's a power move. Adoption in Rome was something about power and prestige and heirs, and and you'll see more about that in a minute. Paul was a Roman citizen. He was greatly affected by his thinking. He was born a Jew. He was born a Roman. And Paul was, the, the Jews of his day, the, the Pharisees, Gamaliel, they're quite familiar with Roman law. They knew about Roman law. They maybe weren't Roman jurists, but they, were, they knew about Roman law. They knew how the culture functioned. They knew all about Roman society. And Paul did too. If you read his writings, you can see from a Roman point of view how much he writes, mm-hmm. which is fine. Remember, in the Jewish culture, there was no process for adoption. Remember that? If a man dies, his brother was automatically the head of the household, so there's no lead for legal adoption. But the word adoption in the time that Paul spoke refers to the Roman concept. Now, in ancient Rome, adoption had a powerful meaning. When a child was biologically born, the parents had the option of disowning the child. Now, today, we would be sickened at these things. Well, you we have our own problems. But it says here they could disown the child for a variety of reasons. The child did not even have to be desired by the parent and having a biological child did not mean that relationship was permanent. <laughs> like today. In other words, the adopted child had a better position than the biological child. The paterfamilias was a patriarchal rule society. In Rome, the paterfamilias was everything. He was the, he was the head of the house and his word was next to God's Word. Here's, here's one example. Fathers had near limitless power over their families, especially children. They had legal rights over their children until they died. It didn't matter how old the child was. You had legal rights over them. Uh, they could be... Uh, the paterfamiliats the could arrange marriages. He could command divorce even of a couple that loved each other. So if that father, the fathers didn't like his son's wife or his daughter's husband, he can just say divorce. And they had to divorce, whether they loved each other or not. He had power um, to decree all these things. He could expose children. Now, there's a concept in Roman times called exposing, exposing. What it meant was when a biological child was born, the people who had the child would place the child on the ground and the father with the would come out, and he would look at the child, male or female, and if he didn't want the child, it was exposed. Exposed meant, guess what that means? Die. But what, what would most likely happen, they said, is it didn't often die, that the child would often be taken to a place where someone would keep it, or he could even sell the child or he could, you know, or would die. But it was rare that they say the children were actually left to die. They were usually taken in because there was such a mortality, high mortality rate in Rome because of women dying at birth. Like, that's another reason why adoption was so popular. Because people just, you know, like 25% of all people died before they were 10. And most people never made it to, to 40 years old. So they were all, people died a lot in Rome, in the Roman times because of health uh, you know diseases, no medicines that we have like that, so the pater could even kill his own children, he could disown them at any time, he could sell them at any time, so to be adopted was a lot better. so a child who was adopted though was a different story. You were eagerly desired, you were chosen out. see the, see the connection now I 'm saying with paul you were you were sought after now and they were doing it because it was a career move the child was this adopted child was freely chosen and desired by the parents or the Familias. Yes. the child would be now listen to this the child once adopted the male usually there were older males 20 to 30 years old that were adopted not little kids older males by older men who were high nobles who could not have a son or their sons died They would then adopt this 20 or 30 year old man who they'd choose out and he would become the heir and that's how Tiberius, Augustus and those got to be emperors because they were chosen out by these noblemen. So the adopted child would be a permanent part of the family. The parent could not disown a child that was adopted. He could disown his own biological son but his adopted child he would never disown. Nobody want to because he chose them for that reason. Once a child was adopted, he received a whole new identity. He left his family behind. That doesn't mean it was sad all the time. It was a career move. They would say that sometimes a man who had, say, say you had four sons and you were going to die and you wanted to be in an upper class. You would, you, when you died, your sons wouldn't receive enough money to keep them in the upper class. So the father would say, son, you need to put yourself out. <laughs> I don't know exactly how it worked. But the son would then seek out a paterfamilias who'd spot a son. And he would go to him. It's like uh, he would just go to that. And no, no problem. I mean, people probably were a little saddened by it, but these were grown men. And it, was, it would actually elevate them to a new class. So their old debts were wiped away. When, when you became adopted, your debts were gone. All your obligations were gone. See the connection with Christ here? Um, new, but new obligations were assumed. Now you were loyal to this new pater familias. Abba, father. Fine. Abba, they say, denotes the closeness, the love. The, the pater familias wasn't, wasn't always a, a, a loving, warm person, right? It was a deal. But Abba means papa. It's an Aramaic term for one who is close and you can go to him. And then why say pater? Actually, in the Greek, the word is pater. It's actually translated exactly like the Latin. So what are we saying? We're saying, Papa, my elder, my, my patriarch, my one who keeps me, one who chose me, one who took me, one who keeps me safe and secure, who gives me all your inheritances, who gives me, I'm an heir, I'm a co-heir. Once you're adopted, you're immediately an heir. This tells us about the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? Father, give me my inheritance. Natural and adopted children were allowed to have their inheritance before the person died, as long as the paterfamilionist allowed it. They could control their own property. They had a guarantee once they were adopted. Being adopted was superior to being a biological son. Doesn't that make a lot more sense now when you read it and you see what Paul's saying? He says, when you receive the spirit of sonship... He's saying, you received the
1: spirit of adoption.
0: You're solid. And so we read here that uh, in ancient Roman inheritance, of course, like I said, was, uh, was part of it. And it doubles up the power of God's significance. And it's a reminder that we are fully desired. So in a way, being the spirit of adoption reifies or reinforces election and predestination, I would say. Because when, when that man was... He, and see, here's the difference, though. Here, this is the good news. When these particular asked, would they look for these men, these young men, to become an heir or to be the emperor, they sought out the best mind, the most suitable, the, the highly talented, gifted one. But with us, not many were wise, not many were noble, not many were great according to the world. He doesn't choose us according to how wonderful we are. He chose us before the foundation of the earth and he desired us to be adopted and that's why and it says not only that now it says now you understand when it says we are co-heirs with Christ co-heirs he, he is our brother and we, we are adopted into this family by the yes. so Abba Father is the core of intimacy and yet he's re, our relation to him is our, our, our elder who we owe all allegiance to all honor and loyalty to as well. And like I said, that these men, for the first 200 years in the Roman Empire, these men were chosen according to their talents and, and their obedience and not their bloodline, but who they were. And they became some of the greatest uh, emperors as well. Anyone want to add some of that? Go ahead.
2: Just, just from a legal point of view, adoption is, as you said, permanent. And the person adopted becomes an ear just as if they were blood born. That's right. And I have never, because of that, and I'm so thankful, I've mm-hmm. never had a problem with the concept of losing my salvation. And anyone who is taught that, or considering that, or worried about that, needs to go to this. Amen. You're not going to. I mean, you're always going to be a son. Mm-hmm you can't be unsunned Right. You'll always right. be a son. You may right. be a son in rebellion. Right. You have to go to your father and ask forgiveness. But you're right. always a son. You can't unsun yourself. Right. And, and it's just such a re, just a refreshing concept, a reassuring concept of adoption.
0: Isn't is it ironic, too, that Jesus said the biological son had a less stable standing than the adopted son? And what did Jesus say to the Jews? To the biological sons, the sons of Abraham in the flesh, he said, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to another Mm -hmm. producing fruit thereof. So the biological son, Jesus said, in that day you will see these prostitutes and sinners sitting down with Abraham and you yourselves thrust out. Do not say we have Abraham as John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. We have Abraham as our father. God is able to raise up stones to be his children. Mm -hmm. Right?
2: It explains the gladiator too. How's that? Well, didn't didn't in the movie Gladiator that Russell Crowe was going to be, gained, uh, be made Caesar by his father? Right. And probably because his his fa- his he, he was related to his father Caesar through that adopted thing. Yeah. So the, of course the natural son comes in and kills him.
0: Right, right. They 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 explains a
2: little bit. Yeah, it does. It was very important in those days, Pat.
1: It will never be said of an
0: adopted child that he or she was a mistake. That's right. (laughs) Amen. Yeah. And and like like Pat said Rob said, you can't be unsung. I mean I mean you were highly you would never even be thought to be unsung because you were chosen. Mm. You were loved. He would never and now we have a faithful God, not even an earthly particular. We have God the Father who would never think to unlove us. And that that shows by when we fail. And he forgives us and cleanses us and restores us, right? The love is even greater. So the good thing about adoption, like you were just saying, it actually re, it fortifies election and predestination, right? Mm-hmm. And it says here, adoption became a standing as justification was a standing. It's a pronouncement that's not repeated. It has permanent validity. Like Robert was saying, permanent validity. Like justification, adoption rests on the loving purpose and grace of God. And and like we said, the terms Paul uses are sons and children a lot. And they're family terms. Children represents the family relationship the son the term son usually represents a legal standing a legal standing when you're a child of God a relationship you're a son legal standing usually Um, there are luxuries to being a child of God luxuries Mm -hmm. and then he even says here which is kind of a, a verse which is puzzling sort of he says in verse 16 the spirit himself testifies with our spirit we are God's children now that kind of is that's in between what I just said about being co-heirs and adoption what can that mean because if there's anything that's sort of subjective right like there are things that are concrete and objective like Paul says if, if someone if any man who says confesses with his mouth Jesus is Lord and <clears> believes in his heart God raised him from the dead he is shall be saved okay how do you know the spirit is in you how do you know the Holy Spirit is in you. How do you know? I mean, we're talking about subjectivity here. But there's a reason why he says this. Again, going back to Jewish ideology, ideas, law. The Holy Spirit testifies with your spirit that we are children of God. Now, I think I know why. I can't explain it to you. And this writer even says it's not dependent on a written word. It's a secret inner witness. Uh, and I hate to be sub- subjective, but go ahead, Doreen. Right. I, I think like you were saying, we all know we have a new desire, right? The old is gone. The new has come. We've been born again. We were a new creation. We can still fall. We know that. We're waiting to, to like the Bible says, we're groaning. The earth groans, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. We're redeemed, but the full redemption has to still come. What we, Paul says where the mortality puts on immortality. Right?
1: Would you... You say that you, you can pull, you can stumble, but not completely fall.
0: Right. That's that's the way a lot of people use that. I don't
1: know. You're,
0: You're right, and the Holy Spirit will always God by thank thank the Lord be there to to come to us and sometimes prod us and sometimes prick us. And like one writer says, the Holy Spirit is different how he leads. He says that unlike sin, it says unlike sin, which may at first gently <laughs> seduce. Right, Sin first gently seduces. It's a, then it becomes a driver, a taskmaster. He says, but the Holy Spirit relies on persuasion rather than force. And logic and truth, he teaches us and reminds us of the things of the Scripture that, that are true. Well, one thing to remember, just to, just to kind of, as we go to conclude, the Spirit testifies, it means witness. Does that give you a hint? Thick Old Testament. How many witnesses does it take to validate something? Two or, more. two or more. How many do we got here? Three. Go ahead.
2: But you got the Trinity in this whole time. That's
0: true. It, but in this, and you're right, and in this very verse, he's says just specifically talking about two right now, but you're right. Because Jesus said, whoever loves me, my Father and I will come and make our abode in him. So that's the Trinity. Holy my Father and I
2: and the Holy Spirit. You've got... Holy Spirit individually. You've got the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ all in this text within about Right,
0: right, right. All all together. So just just the Spirit, capital S, with our Spirit is two witnesses and that validates that you are one of the validations of the child of God. He concludes by saying if we indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may share in His glory and that's actually really a transition into the next portion because he's going to talk about suffering as a Christian. And if we're willing to suffer as a Christian, which is part of our being shown that we're being led by the Spirit of God as well, our willingness to suffer or not. Remember, remember in the parable, Justin, uh, the parable of the sower, remember the one that sprang up really quickly, but what happened? Troubles came, and it withered because wow, it had no root. Justin? Yeah.
4: And, and just like back to the adoption um, and the heirs with Christ, uh, when someone is adopted, and especially as an adult, they're taken from having no inheritance with that person to being the chief inheritor of, of all of their things. And a lot of times that adoption would actually be part of the will of the person when they die. Um, like uh, Augustus was adopted by Julius Caesar and it wasn't it was in his will that that was declared so mm-hmm. in the death of Christ we receive adoption to God mm-hmm. and are declared heirs to receive um, the inheritance of all things that are God's right. give us
0: Amen and if you think about it too you think about Christ right Philippians 2 he did it in the reverse so we could go in the what's the word Obverse. I don't know what it means to go the other way Christ God did not count equality with God something that he had to grab and hold on to, right? He lowered himself, finding himself in the form of a became a man into a slave, right? And even the death on a cross, the most ugly way to be treated as a human being, so that we could go from a slave to a son to an heir, co heirs. With him now, full circle. He brought us out of the Garden of Eden's demise and into the eternal kingdom of His in uh, fullness of life with new body, a Spirit that's fully known, that we can fully know, understand Him in a greater way. All these things done. And the Spirit is the testifier. Like Jesus said, it's good for you that I go away. It's the best thing. And how could that be? Because if I don't go, the Spirit won't come. And all these things can happen. But if I go away, I will come again to you. I'll not leave you alone. And that's how we exist and continue today.
1: I like to look at the Trinity as the Father is the Creator, the Son is the Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit is the Sustainer.
0: Well, amen. They have all the different roles, and they work it. But you're right. That's a good point. That's a good point. Justin, would you close us at a prayer?
4: Dear Heavenly Father, We are blessed to receive adoption as sons. Mm -hmm. We have no right or claim to inheritance with with Christ, but you graciously give that to us, Lord. So let us walk from here, Lord, in assurance, seeking to live in accordance with the spirit we've been given, with the same heart that Christ had, a Mm -hmm. heart for your glory, Lord. We thank you for your abundant love. Mm -hmm. In Jesus' name we pray.
0: Amen. Thank you. Thank
3: you Barry.